I'm happy to be here, but I'm happier that you're here than I'm here. And if I was here and you weren't here, I wouldn't be so happy. <laughs> it's wonderful. There's almost three quarters of the seats are filled and I'm, I'm overjoyed. Thank you for coming and I hope that we can stay together night by night. We're going to have meetings for 14, 16 nights, is it 16 nights that we're going to have meetings here? Thursdays to Sundays, four weeks in a row. And so you're all invited. Bring your friends. I hope you come every night. Thank you for coming. Now, it was in September. Some of you may have had the opportunity of seeing the Messiah's mansion, the, the sanctuary replica that we had put out, put together out there on the Highway 25. And when that happened and 6,200 and so many people came to visit this thing, many people said that they were interested. They wanted to come and they wanted to see, they wanted to understand more. And this is what is the follow-up. We decided since people were interested in knowing more about the sanctuary, then we would organize these little meetings together so that we can delve, delve deeper into the sanctuary. And so this is what this is all about. And I am especially grateful for Candy Katzma. This is one of our staff members at Eden Valley. She put these things together. She's been working feverishly for the last few weeks. She painted all this. She's an excellent, excellent um, artist. And you can see what she's done. And I owe her a lot for doing this. We're going to be studying the sanctuary. That's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. And this is the sanctuary. It's a replica. We're seeing it from, of course, from the sky here. And the roof is off the building, so you can see the furniture that's inside. And as we study through there, through this, we're going to go step by step through the building, trying to understand how God has given us a plan of salvation, not just in the New Testament, but all the way back there in the Old Testament, even in the wilderness when Moses was existing, the Lord had him build this thing and the Lord illustrated the plan of salvation for humanity. What's interesting to me is that there are a lot of people, a lot of religions, a lot of denominations who understand to some degree the plan of salvation. I assume we all understand to some degree the plan of salvation. And we work, we walk through the sanctuary understanding and saying, well, this is what we understand. But when we get to this little veil here in the sanctuary... Do you know that the sanctuary is as well prophetic as it is symbolic? And then once you cross this veil, you're crossing into the future or into what God's intentions are for his people. And I believe with all my heart that this is what a lot of people don't understand about the, the plan of salvation. God has specific intentions for his people in the last days. We find the secrets revealed beyond this veil. So we're going to work our way to that point. And after so many meetings, we're going to cross in there, and I hope we can learn things that we don't know about the plan of salvation, especially what God wants to do in the last days with his people. Very interesting, very important, and I hope you'll stay with us uh, through that. Do you mind if we start with a word of prayer? Let's, uh, let's bow together. Heavenly Father... Lord, we're here. I'm so grateful for the people that have come. I'm so grateful for the opportunity for us to study the plan of salvation through the sanctuary together. We just, we just are totally dependent upon what the Holy Spirit will do. We need you to be the teacher. We need you to bring conviction to our hearts when conviction is what's needed. We need you to bring comfort to our hearts when comfort is what's needed. We need guidance. We need you all the time. So guide us, we pray. Bless us. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. You have Bibles, I assume. Some of you may or may not be familiar with the Bible. And so as I have you turn to texts in the Bible, I will actually call out the page number. So you don't have to be embarrassed to have whatever you understand. Listen, I never picked up a Bible till I was 25 years old. I didn't know zip about the Bible. I'd never even had one in my hands until I was 25 years old. So don't be embarrassed if you're not acquainted with it. This is what we're here for. We would like to acquaint you with it. And so to make it easier for everyone, I'm, I'm going to use the same Bible you're using, 
And when I have you turn to a text, I'm going to actually give you the page number so that you know where to go with it. And so let's begin. You can see what the title is. It's up here on the screen. It says, Mystery of the House that God Built. I have you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, and that's page number 941. So that's easy. You can go to page number 941. And if you want to be a blessing to yourself, I would encourage you to study, to learn, to memorize the books of the Bible. Many of you already know all of that, but sometimes, occasionally, as you know, we have a wellness center there at Eden Valley, and I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with the lifestyle guests that come. In November, we're expecting 16 lifestyle guests to come. And we give them all Bibles, and we study for one hour every morning with these people. And many times, some people, well, many times, people don't know anything about the Bible. And so, we work through it. The people learn the books of the Bible, and pretty soon, we're all proficient. It takes time. I'm glad you're here. We can learn all this together. It's going to be a blessing, the mystery of the house that God built. Have you ever heard of a mystery house? Oh, by the way, when I begin a sermon, I always throw a text out there. But I'm not going to read that text right away sometime. Sometimes it might be ten minutes, sometimes it might be. So I've had you turn to a, a verse or a page in the Bible. Just hang on to it, it's coming. We're going to read that verse, don't get nervous. Um, this is how I do it. It's efficient, you know? Yeah. Okay, have you ever heard of a mystery house in San Jose, California? Yeah, it's a really strange thing over there. And maybe some of you have visited this place. Uh, if I ever get to San Jose, I really would like to visit this place. It was built by a Mrs. Sarah Winchester. Now, when I say the word Winchester, does that ring a bell with anyone? Especially the men? Well, I saw a woman not. <laughs> yeah, if I ask you, have you ever had a Winchester? What would you be seeing in your mind? A rifle, that's right. Do you know the Winchester is the gun that is the gun that won the West? That's its reputation, or maybe that was its logo, I don't know. Well this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a Mrs. Sarah Winchester. She was married to William Wirt Winchester in eighteen sixty two. He was born, of course, the son of the manufacturer of the Winchester rifle, the gun that won the West. And they were very, very wealthy. William and Sarah when they got married, and apparently their, their marriage was very happy as well. Hey, why not? They were very, very wealthy, and she could have anything that she wanted. However, things didn't stay quite that way for, for very long, because in 1866, this is only five years later, or actually four years later, her little daughter died of some mysterious disease. And it threw Mrs. Winchester into a deep depression. Now, you can imagine, some of you may suffer from depression sometimes. You know what that's like. And that's how it was for her. She was deeply depressed because of it. But that's not all the sorrow, and that's not all the tragedies that this poor lady experienced. In 1881, this is 15 years later, her husband died prematurely of tuberculosis. So now she had lost her daughter, and she had now lost... Her husband, it was another blow, and she had a difficult time recovering from the things that were happening to her, the tragedies in her life, and she began to search for answers. She wanted answers. Unfortunately, she did not turn to the Word of God for answers. Now, friends, you want answers? This is where you get answers. Real answers. True answers. But that's not where she turned. She turned to a medium. Now, I don't know. There may be some of you that don't know what a medium is. Do you know what a medium is? Yeah, that's like a, a go-between. This is an individual who can contact the spirit of the dead, apparently, you see, on behalf of people in this world. So if you want to contact somebody that died, you go to a medium. Well, give yourself a break. Don't do it. It's dangerous, you know. But anyway, she didn't know that, apparently. She was searching for answers. She went to a spirit medium in Boston, and he was able to tell her that the reason that her husband died and the reason that her daughter died was because Indians who had been killed in the Indian Wars and soldiers who had been killed in the Civil War had killed her husband and her daughter because during the Civil War and during the Indian Wars, the Winchester was used to kill the Indians and soldiers, and so the spirits were getting even with her. And not only that, she was next. 
Can you imagine how she felt? Well, the Spirit said she was next, unless she moved west and built a house. And so long as she would be building this house, she would be left alone to live her life. And so, that's what she did. She moved to San Jose, California, and she began to build a house. She built this house for 38 years non-stop. She didn't stop building the house. As a matter of fact, she had tons and tons of money. She was a Winchester heir, after all. And so she... You got it there? Look at this thing. This is one house, by the way. Yeah. And she was building. She hired carpenters, the best of carpenters, the best of money, the best of... of, uh, of uh, Material that you money could buy, and she she was building. She was having these carpenters build 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 38 years. Now, how much can you build on a building for 38 years? Well, obviously, she had to have additions and more additions and more additions. She had seven stories to her building. She had 160 rooms in the building. She had 47 fireplaces, 2,000 doors, 10,000 windows, 13 bathrooms and 16 kitchens. She had 47 staircases. Some of the staircases went up and and stopped at a wall. Boing. Period. There was nothing more. You just went up the staircase and hit a wall. (laughs) One of the staircases had seven flights of stairs, but only lifted, only had nine feet of head. That's because every step was only two inches tall, and it was long, it was it was winding like this, just went up and up and up and up. I mean, what in the world? Yeah. The building cost her five point five million dollars. What was the house for? Well, I don't think that she could have told you what the house was for, except that the only thing I can come up with is the house was for to accommodate spirits. Because it was the spirits that were guiding her, telling her what to do, and that's what she was doing it. Do spirits need a house? What for? Well, that's the mystery. <laughs> that's the mystery of this house. And you can visit this house today. And they'll give you tours. Yeah, I'd like to do that sometime. Anyway, Sarah went to her grave in 1922. This was 38 years after she started building There's another house that I would like to tell you about, filled with mystery and filled with symbols, built for another spirit. And that's why I had you turn to John chapter 4. If you you look now at John chapter 4, you're on page 941. And Jesus is in Samaria. He's by the Jacob's well, apparently. And he's talking to a woman in Samaria. Now, you know what Samaria is, don't you? There was some time ago, a long time before Jesus, maybe six, eight, seven, eight hundred years, when uh, the sons of Jacob were twelve. There were twelve tribes of Israel. Ten of the tribes decided to apostatize, and they went. They went to Samaria. They were called the Northern Kingdom, and in in Samaria, because they didn't want these people, these twelve tribes, to to migrate back towards Jerusalem to worship with the people with the, the children of Judah and Benjamin, they decided that they would have their own their own temple, and they began to worship down there. And so these ten tribes began to mix with the people around them. There's a mixture of Jew, of, uh, of uh, I was going to say Jews, they're not Jews, they're a mixture of Israelites with idol, idol worshippers, and that's who they became. And they made Samaria their capital. So Jerusalem was the capital of the Jews, and Samaria was the capital of the of the fallen tribes of Israel. So Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman. Now they didn't get along, Jews and, and Samaritans, but Jesus happens to be at the well. This woman comes along, and Jesus is talking to her, and they're worsh- they're talking about worshiping the true God. Now notice what God said, and what Jesus said in John chapter four. We're looking at verse twenty-two to twenty-four. And it seems really bold, actually. But Jesus said, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, talking about the Jews, for salvation is of the Jews. Yeah, that's what he took. I mean, can you talk that straight to people? You don't know what you worship. Well, some people talk like that. <laughs> I suppose when it comes to religion, it's quite that way. You know, we have the truth. Have you ever met people who say we have the truth? Everybody else is wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Do we talk that way sometimes? 
Well, that's not taught that way. But anyways, Jesus was talking that way here, it seems. You don't know what you're worshipping. But we know what we're worshipping because salvation or, worship or salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now he is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is, excuse me, yeah, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Did you catch that? God is spirit. Sarah Winchester built a house for spirits. We're going to study about a house full of symbols, full of mystery. I guess I should point that way. Yeah. Built for God who is a spirit. God is not limited to the limits that you and I have because we are not spirit. We are mortals, of course. He is omnipresent. Do you know what that means? He's everywhere at the same time. That's what he is. The Bible calls him, or he actually calls himself in the Bible, the great I am. Isn't that a strange name? Yeah. God calls himself I am. In other words, he's saying, I exist. I exist right now. I exist throughout all eternity, all at the same time. Now that is something we can't do. Yeah. The Bible says that God is omniscient. That means he's all-seeing. The Bible says that God is omnipresent or omnipotent, which means all-powerful. God is the creator of all that exists and he created it all by simply speaking it into existence and we worship him as such, God Almighty. God is the Spirit and God is, is amazing. Is amazing. If we actually believed in God, we would believe that he's Somewhat smarter than we are, right? How much smarter than we are? Yeah. More powerful than we are? Yeah. Does he understand things? Yeah. It's amazing to me. Now, I can understand people who say, well, I don't believe in God, and so that's the end of the conversation. I can understand that. But there's a lot of people who believe in God who actually don't believe in God. Because the God they believe in is so small. He says, this is bad for you, and they go on to do it, saying, well, I'm smarter than God. Well, how in the world can we be smarter than God? We can't, if we actually believe in who he is. And and do we? I hope so. Yeah. And not only does it say that God is spirit, but we are worshiping God in truth as well as in spirit. In John chapter 8, verse 44, and you don't have to turn there, because it's going to be on the screen. There it is right there. And there's just one sentence I want to lift out of that verse. It says, The devil is a liar from the beginning and the father of it. Ah, but friends, God is a God of truth. Do you know that God's honor is staked on his word being true? Can you imagine God lying? No, no. So if God doesn't lie and every word is true, then what should we do with it? Well, we ought to worship him not only in spirit, but we ought to worship him in truth. In truth. Because if we live a lie, we dishonor God. We're just saying that we don't believe him. And yet God never lies. It's amazing. It's amazing what has happened to our brains as human, as human beings. We can say we believe God, but we don't believe every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We per se, we can say, ah, oh, I, I really, really believe God. And then when God says, don't do this or don't do that, <clears throat> we can, we can explain it away. Instead of believing what God says. Ah, friends, listen. Let's shed the deception. Let's believe God. Let's take God at His word. When I was 25 years old, <clears throat> I had never held the Bible, like I said. And I didn't know too much what was in it. I began to read it, thinking I would read it from cover to cover. And then I would make a decision as to whether this book was what it claimed to be, the Word of God. I didn't read very long, maybe two weeks, and I was absolutely, totally convicted that this was the Word of God. Yeah, well, nice. Yeah, that's right. Do you know what I did? And I would like to encourage you likewise. 
I got on my knees and I said, Lord, I am not going to the priest. I am not going to the pastor. I'm not going to the Jehovah Witnesses. I'm not going to the Baptists. I'm not going to the Pentecostals. I'm not going to the Adventists. I'm not going anywhere. I am going to read the Bible. And do you know why I didn't want to go to all these people? Because they all said, we have the truth. And everybody else is wrong. And there was something that didn't fit in my mind. Can you understand? If this man says he has the truth, but he doesn't agree with this man, then they can both be wrong, but they can't both be right. And I... I did not feel like I knew how to discern all of this, how to separate all of this, how to draw the truth out of it. And so I said to God on my knees, I said, I am not going to get anyone else to teach me. If you want to teach me anything, you do it. And so I said, I'm going to read the Bible and anything I learn in the Bible, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. You're just going to have to teach me yourself. Now, do you think God would like to do that? Well, let me tell you. That's the very way he would like to do it. And he would like to do it with every single individual in the world. As a matter of fact, he would like to do it with you. There is a God in heaven, as amazingly big as he is, as amazingly wise and strong and powerful and loving and all the rest that he is, he is willing to condescend, to come down and to teach you personally. Isn't that amazing? Can you believe that? Well, try it. It's just that simple. You get on your knees, and then you say, I'm going to read the Bible, but whatever you teach me, I'll do it. And if you really, really mean it, now some people will fool themselves, I guess, don't really mean it, but if you really mean to follow God, wherever He's going, wherever He wants to bring you, He will guide you into all truth, and we, I could show you where that Bible verse is if you wanted it. Are you willing? I mean, what are we doing here anyway? We're having an evangelistic series here. We're wanting to be introduced to Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And this is what we're going to be doing. And if we really want to know, then I suppose we've already decided that we're going to do what we learn, right? I hope so. Oh, I hope so. Because this is so necessary. So necessary. And so God decided that he would illustrate the plan of salvation by the sanctuary in the wilderness. Every aspect of the sanctuary reveals something about Jesus. You know, in the sanctuary, and we don't have any people in this one, but in the sanctuary, obviously, there will be a priest ministering there. Who does the priest represent in the sanctuary, do you think? Jesus. Do you know that the sinner comes from some tent out here and he makes his way to the sanctuary, to this door? Do you know that he has to bring a lamb with him? Who's the lamb? Jesus, that's who it is. Yeah. What about, he, he brings the lamb to this piece of furniture. Do you know what that is? That's the altar of sacrifice. Do you know what that represents? The cross that Jesus hung on. Yeah. And this is the labor. This is where Jesus made a commitment through baptism. And this is where we would make a commitment. After we come to the cross and give our hearts to Jesus, we ought to be baptized. The Bible says we should be baptized. Right? And then we would go on from there and we would go into the sanctuary and there's three pieces of furniture and they all represent Jesus. The whole thing is Jesus. You know, the, the walls are made of white and as soon as a man walks in through the gate here into the sanctuary, do you know that it represents being in Christ? All the people out there in the tents could see a man walking over here and going in here. But once he's in there, he's disappeared behind white. The white purity of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. This is what it represents. And it's wonderful. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. And we're looking at page 72. Page 72 in Exodus 25. Looking at verse 8. Exodus 25 verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Who's speaking here? Jesus is speaking. How do we know? Well, look at these two posters. You see this one? Psalm 77, 13. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Now, have you ever seen a Bible called The Way? Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, why did they call this Bible the way? 
Well, it's because Jesus is the way. It says so right here, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. That's what it says, right? No man can, comes to the Father but by me. No one goes to heaven but by Jesus. No one gets eternal life but through Jesus. There is no other way. And, and I don't know if that's too strong for some people, but it just happens to be what the Bible says, and that just happens to be what Jesus said. And there are a lot of religions in the world. But let me tell you something. There's no way to heaven except by the way. And by the way is Jesus and your way, O oh God, is in the sanctuary. Therefore, Jesus is the way. The sanctuary is the way. The sanctuary represents Jesus through and through. That's what it's all about. Okay. So, Jesus is my sanctuary. Jesus is my refuge. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. And I hope that He's yours too. And as we study together, we want to deepen this conviction. We want to deepen our interest in Jesus because he is our only hope. He really, really is. Now, I want you to notice the instructions that God gave Moses in the building of this, of this sanctuary. You can turn with me to Exodus 25 again. That's still on page 22. It doesn't move around. It stays right there in the Bible. Exodus 25, we're looking at verses 8 and 9. This is page 72. I guess I closed my Bible. Maybe you didn't close yours. Here we go again. Exodus 25, looking at verses 8 and 9. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now watch carefully in verse 9. According to all that I show you. That is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishing, just so shall you make it. Now, did Moses just decide to build a building and build it anyhow he wanted to? Why no? God says, I want you to build a building. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell there. Jesus said, I want to dwell there with you. And you're going to make this building just as I say, because everything in the building is symbolic of something about Jesus. And if Moses decided to do his own head and to change something because he likes it better green instead of white for the walls, then he would mar the symbolism. And so God said, be careful that you build it just as I say, because the symbolism throughout the building is very important. Look at verse 40. It says pretty well the same thing. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mount. So there already existed a pattern. And, and Moses made it after the pattern. Where was this pattern anyway? Where did it exist? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, we're looking at verses 1 and 2. This is page 1066, 1066, Hebrews. And we're looking at chapter 8, Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to look at verse 5, Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such an high priest. Now, Jesus is the high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister of the sanctuary. So, Jesus is in heaven and he's called a minister that is the high priest in the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Now, man, did man ever pitch a sanctuary? Well, it's right there. That's the sanctuary that man pitched. Ah, but God pitched the sanctuary too and it's in heaven. And this sanctuary is a pattern of the one that is in heaven. That's what we see. Verse 5. Who serve? Talking about the priests down here in the wilderness tabernacle here. They serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. So this is only a shadow. Do you have a shadow? Yeah? Good. Huh? When the sun shines. <laughs> Yeah, so which is the reality? You are the shadow. Yeah, that's right. Now look at it. This is just a shadow. This is just patterned after the reality. And the reality is in heaven. And the Lord did it that way because he wanted to teach us what he's doing in heaven when he goes in heaven. By the way, the outer court here in the sanctuary represents Jesus' time in the world here on earth. But once he ascended to heaven, he crossed into this 
to this through this veil, and this part here represents heaven. So whatever Jesus is doing in here, he's doing it in heaven, and it's for a specific purpose for us here on earth. It's important that we understand that also. Okay? Well, I was reading, I think, uh, verse 5, right? Talking about the priests, they served the copy of the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So God showed Moses the sanctuary in heaven and he told him to build a replica down here in this world. Go to chapter 9 now. It's just the very next chapter. We're going to look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. It's talking about the blood of lambs and the blood of goats and the blood of bulls and those things purified the temple down here below. And it was necessary that it should be that way. But then it goes on to say, but the heavenly things, the heavenly sanctuary themselves are to be, you know, if I add the words in here, they are to be purified with better sacrifices than these. What's the better sacrifice in heaven? Yeah, it's the sacrifice, it's the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus applied to the heavenly things in heaven, of course. Verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. So God has a house in heaven, a temple, a sanctuary there. Habakkuk chapter 2. This is page 827. This is one of the minor prophets. It's not easy to find if you don't have a page number. It's page 827. Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 20. In Habakkuk chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. That's where he is. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Where's God? He's in his holy temple. And friends, we can't go there. It's too far. It's in heaven. We have no access to this thing except by faith. And I would like to encourage you to screw up your faith. Let's go into the sanctuary in heaven. Let's see what Jesus is doing there and what it means for us down here in this world below. Jesus said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That I may dwell among them. So what does the sanctuary represent? It represents Jesus. So then who is speaking in Exodus 25 verse 8? Let them make me a sanctuary. Jesus is speaking. Do you know that Jesus is in the Old Testament? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, the whole Bible is about Jesus. If you'll turn with me to Luke 24, verse 44. Luke 24, this is page 937. Luke 24, verse 44. 937. 937. Luke 24, verse 44. I'm not used to this Bible. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. There's two disciples walking there. They're so discouraged because Jesus was crucified. There's a stranger walking with them and he's telling them that in the Bible, in the Psalms, in the book of Moses, in the prophets, everything that is written there is about me. That's what he said. And he was talking about himself, Jesus. So all the Old Testament is about Jesus. It's amazing. John chapter 5, verse 39. This is page 943. John chapter 5, verse 39. Similar saying, Jesus again is speaking. He says, you search the scriptures... For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? When Jesus was speaking here, was the New Testament written? Well, no, there was no New Testament then when Jesus was speaking. He was speaking about the Old Testament. That's the only scriptures that existed. And he was saying, they testify of me. The Old Testament is all about Jesus, like the New Testament is all about Jesus. 
Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, this is 1045, page 1045. Go there if you can. I hope you don't mind using your Bible because I intend to do so. 1045, Colossians chapter 1. And we're looking at verses 12 to 17 in Colossians chapter 1. Give a thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created. Notice who created all things. Jesus did. For by Him all things are created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And so right from creation, Jesus is there. He is the Creator. Everything consists by what Jesus has done. So anyway, we also have the plan of salvation in the Old Testament, just like we have the plan of salvation in the New Testament. And there's a lot of people who would like to say that in the Old Testament, the people you could be saved by works, they could be saved by keeping the law, and in the New Testament, that's a new dispensation, now we are saved by grace. But it isn't so. It isn't so. The Jesus that is in the New Testament is the same Jesus that is in the Old Testament. We are saved by grace from the beginning to the end. And we can show that because we're going to learn that in the sanctuary. That there is no way to be saved except by the cross, the atonement that's made at the cross of Calvary. There's no other way to be saved. Don't tell me you can be saved by keeping the law. It can't happen. It won't happen. So let's look at that now for a minute. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. I don't have to give you a page number. By the way, the first book in the Bible is Genesis, the last book in Revelation. Those two books, I don't have to tell you where they are. They're in the beginning. They are in the end. That's what it is. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, God created everything. In Genesis chapter 1, in chapter 2, He created he had Adam and Eve there already, and he had a beautiful garden for Adam and Eve, and they were all, everything they could possibly need. And how would you like to live in paradise? Well, that's where they were. They were in paradise, and absolutely everything they could possibly need was there with them in paradise. God had given it all for them. But there was something of an awkward situation for, for God in this situation, because he did not want to have mechanical, mechanical obedience by his creation. And so he created them with the power of choice, except that there was nothing to choose. There was no alternative. They were good and everything was good, and they did not have a choice between good and evil. And so God says, how are they going to show that they love me unless they have a choice? And so he wanted to give them a choice. But the choice that he gave them, the test that he gave them, was the lightest test you could possibly give anyone. He just chose a tree from all the fruit. By the way, there were only two people. And, you know, I don't know how many fruit trees there are, but I'll tell you what, one fruit tree and two people can't eat all the fruit that's on that tree. I'll tell you, it's just that way. Yeah. And so there were many, many fruit trees, all kinds of stuff, and God just chose one tree out of the midst of the garden, and he says, this is the test, don't eat from that from that tree. Genesis chapter 2, we're looking at verse 17, we can see the, the very words right there. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Wow. Isn't that a strong saying? Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, you're dead. Wow. It was a test, but it wasn't a big test because they didn't have to eat from the tree at all. They were not deprived anything. They were not sacrificing anything. They didn't hurt in any wise because of that test. And they had there a wonderful opportunity to show God that they loved Him. They had a wonderful opportunity to show God that they trusted Him. His word was true. I mean, God doesn't lie. And He said, don't eat or you die. And so they had the opportunity. Do you know that nothing's changed today? Do you know that we have the very same opportunity today? Turn with me to John chapter 14. 
We're in John chapter 14. Again, it's page 955. 955. In John chapter 14, looking at verses 21 to 20. No, we're going to look at verse 15 first. John 14 and verse 15 to begin with. Familiar verse for most people, those who study the Bible. John 14, and we're looking at verse 15. Jesus is speaking, and he said, If you love me, what? Do what I say. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's what he says. Is it true? I mean, does he mean it? Yeah. Does it make any sense? Is he being arbitrary? Is he wanting to be bossy? Does he want to be the boss and he wants everyone to serve him? No. Listen. If God is who he says he is, then he's a million times wiser than I am. I'd be an idiot not to do what he said. As a matter of fact, there are plenty of idiots in this world. No. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Jesus is worth following. Jesus is God. Jesus knows what he's saying. Jesus loves us. And he would never ask us to do anything that would do us harm. That's why the Bible says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. Doesn't the Bible say that? This is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. I didn't have it in my notes here. He says that. Do you know why? Be grateful for everything. You say, well, how can I be grateful for everything? Sometimes bad things happen. Do you know that God would never ask you to be grateful for anything that would do you harm? No. Once you give your heart to Jesus, all things work together for your good. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad that's coming at you. Jesus is there to catch it and to turn it to your advantage. And if you can believe this, let me tell you something. Your life will be very successful. Very positive. Have you ever met positive as opposed to negative people? Who's the successful one? Why is it that positive people are more successful than negative people? I mean, isn't there enough to be negative about in this world? It's amazing, but even even in the secular world where there is no God, everyone knows that the person who lives positively will be more successful than the person who lives negatively. And in the world, you have no reason for it. There is no reason for it. All kinds of bad things can happen to you. But Christians have a reason. We have a reason. We have a God in heaven who says, I'm going to take everything that comes at you and I'm going to turn it positive for you. All things work together for good to them that love God. It's the truth. And it's wonderful. And I and I try to live my life accordingly. So whatever happens to me, hey, listen, I know there are tragedies that happen in this world. And you can't always see the blessing that's in that. But I could tell you stories. And I don't have time. I wish I had time. I would tell you stories. So Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love him? Look at verses 21 to 24. John 14, verses 21 to 24. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me enough to keep my commandments will be loved of my Father. And I will love him and manifest and reveal myself to him. How would you like Jesus to reveal himself to you? Well, we need him to reveal himself to us. Oh, yes, you want to be inspired. We need to be inspired. Don't we? Sure, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. It says here, in him would be a better translation. He who does not love me does not keep my word. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now there's plenty of people, obviously, who don't love Jesus. Because they don't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And friends, isn't that a simple test? Well, it's simple in theory. <laughs> we want to love Jesus. And by the way, if you want to love Jesus, if you want to obey Jesus, that's acceptable with God. A lot of people would like to speak about perfection sometimes. And I figured out in my mind what perfection is. 
A man who is perfectly intentioned toward God will do his best to obey God and he will come short of it. Do you know he will come short of it? Have you ever done anything perfectly? What's the thing that you do best? Do you do it as well as Jesus can do? No. And so we never actually do anything perfectly. And so the only perfection you can have is to be perfectly intentioned toward God. And I mean sincerely perfectly intentioned toward God. And if you are perfectly intentioned toward God, God will accept that and make up all the deficiencies for you. You are accepted in the Beloved. And heaven is yours. It's just that simple. This is what we need to understand about the Word of God. There's a lot of people who aim at perfection and they never reach it because they have set a standard in their heads as to what perfection means. And they make mistakes and they become so down about making mistakes. They become discouraged with their Christian experience and then they give it all up and they go out to drink booze or something. Let's go on. I have a question for you. Did Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he? Did they? Yeah, they did. God said, don't eat from that tree or you die. Eve walked around, came close to the tree. She saw a serpent in the tree and she thought to herself, because the serpent was talking, by the way, She said, what in the world? A talking animal. That is something. And the serpent said, well, of course I'm talking. Do you know why? Because I ate from the fruit of this tree. And God doesn't want you to eat from the fruit of this tree because he knows that the day that you eat from this tree, you will be as gods. He doesn't want you to be like God. And so he's keeping you from eating from this tree. You see. And so Eve there, all of a sudden, had a decision to make. God had given her the power of choice. And God said, this is my word. Don't do it. And Satan said, through the serpent, did God say, don't eat? Oh, you can eat from this tree. And she had a choice to make. Who would she believe? Do you know that the one she did not believe, she was calling a liar? Do you know that if you don't believe God, you're calling him a liar? That's what she did. It was unbelief. And she sinned, of course. So now, there's another question. Did Adam and Eve die that day? Yes? No? Do you know that there are three answers to that question? No, there are three answers to that question. And all three answers are true. And I don't have time. We we could explore this. And I'm sure you, you could give me only three answers if you thought about it long enough. Somebody will say they began to die that day. Well, yes, they began to die that day. Adam lived 930 years. That's true. Somebody else will say they died spiritually that day. Yes, of course they died spiritually that day. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are dead in sin and trespasses. And I think King David in Psalms 51 says, I was born in sin, born in iniquity. Verse, forget which verse. Yeah. So, yeah. We began to die that day. I mean, Adam and Eve began to die that day. They died spiritually that day. And the third answer is no. They didn't die that day. When God told them, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, he was telling them, I'm sending you back where I got you. Now, where did he get them? Nowhere. (laughs) They came from nowhere. Well, from the ground, but where did the ground come from? You know, he was sending them back to nowhere. That's what death is, by the way. We're going to study that sometime together. Yeah. So now, we have a problem. Did God lie? When God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die, they didn't die. Did God lie? No. Do you know where the answer is? The question is in Genesis chapter 2. The answer is in Revelation chapter 13. Now that's a very strange place to find the answer uh, for sure, because in Revelation chapter 13 you find the beast, and the mark of the beast, and an image to the beast, and the number of his name, and 666, and all kinds of symbols there that we can't understand, or some people can't understand, And the answer is right in the middle of that chapter. We're in Revelation chapter 13. That's the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 13. It's talking about worshiping the beast. We're looking at verse 8. Revelation chapter 13. We're looking at verse 8. And I want you to see the answer as to why they did not die that day and God didn't lie. Revelation 13 verse 8. All who dwell on the earth 
will worship him, talking about the beast of Revelation 13, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Who is the Lamb? Jesus is. When was he slain? From the very beginning, the creation of the world. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus died at the cross 2,000 years ago. What is this talking about? Well, friends, listen. What Jesus suffered at the cross 2,000 years ago did not begin at the cross 2,000 years ago. The pain that he suffered there began with the very inception of sin 6,000 years ago at the very creation of the world when Adam and Eve fell and sinned. And so when Adam took the fruit from the hand of, of Eve and took a bite into it, God, who does not lie, was going to put him out of his misery. But Jesus stood between Adam and the blow that was coming. Jesus took the blow upon himself and became the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What would have happened if Adam had died that day? What would have happened to you? You wouldn't be here. Do you know the only reason you're here is because of the cross of Calvary? There is no other reason. Had there been no cross, you would not have life today. I wish the whole world knew that the only reason they're alive, do you think it would have helped Adolf Hitler had he known that the only reason he had life at all was because there was a creator and there was a, a redeemer who had gone to the cross with his sin and paid the full penalty for it. And it goes beyond that. Do you know that every glass of water is stamped with the cross of Calvary? Do you know that every loaf of bread is stamped with the cross of Calvary? Do you know that we have nothing except that it is blood-bought at the cross of Calvary? I don't care what it is, whether it's a pen in my coat, or whether it's the car that I drive, or the wife that I'm married to, or the children that I have, and my grandchildren. I enjoy all kinds of stuff, and I would enjoy none of it had there been no cross. The truth. We ought to be grateful to this thing. Adam and Eve sinned. And when they sinned, they forfeited all of it. They forfeited all of it. But Jesus took their sin upon himself, paid the penalty of the cross, and offered them a second chance with all the blessings that come. Do you enjoy anything in this world? I enjoy a lot of stuff in this world. Yeah, all stamped with the cross of Calvary. Blood bought by Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a blessing. Um, they forfeited Romans 3.23. I don't even have to turn to it. Well, maybe we should anyway because it's there. Uh, page 1001. This is Romans 3.23. Some of you will know this by heart. There's no doubt about it. Romans 3.23. We all have forfeited the blessing. None of us deserve anything. And if we have anything, it's by grace. So we're in Romans chapter 3. We're looking at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that include you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it does. And what do sinners deserve? Romans 6.23 Romans 6. We're looking at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. When God said to Adam, the day that you sin, you're going to die. He says to us, the day that you sin, you're going to die. That's what it is. Ah, but God had picked on us. God so loved the world, he sent his son. His son took our sins upon himself, went to the cross of Calvary, paid the penalty for us, and gave us a gift. If you look at verse 23 again in chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Do you have the gift? And it's all because Jesus became the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In July... 1794. You know what was going on in 1794? Anybody there? <laughs> Do you know your history? The French Revolution. Somebody spoke it. Yeah. 
Yeah, the French Revolution, the reign of terror, that was what was going on in 1794. The dungeons in Paris were crowded with people just waiting in line to get their heads chopped off by a guillotine. One day, an old man made his way. Somehow, he made his way to the dungeon. Somehow, he managed to get himself arrested and thrown in the dungeon. And while he was in the dungeon, he began to go from place to place in the dungeon. And he looked like he was looking for somebody, looking for something. And that's exactly what it was. He was going all over the dungeon looking for a specific prisoner. Well, eventually, he thought he saw someone that looked very familiar, so he walked over there, and there was a young man sleeping on a cot there, and it was his son. The young man was sleeping, and the father didn't wake him up. The father never slept at all that night, because he had to have a plan. He had to rescue his son. That's why he was there. Can you imagine? How was he going to rescue his son anyway? Well, the next morning, they came, and when they came, they began calling out names of those who were going to be guillotined next, and they called out his son's name. And when they called out his son's name, the son was still asleep, and the old man says, Here I am! And so he followed the executioner. And there was a man there who was kind of a recorder, because he had, you know, they had to do things decently, of course, so they had to record the names of the people. And he said, Are you, and I have the name here, Are you Jean Simone? Or Jean Simon, that's French over there in France. Are you him? He says, yes, that's me. He said, are you 37 years old? The other man, the older man was very quick thinking. You know what he said? He said, I'm 73. Do you know what he did? 3773. And as soon as he said 73, the man looked at him and said, well, but then he thought, of course, the number was just switched. Somebody made a stupid mistake here. And so he took the man, of course, and he was executed. He lost his head. The son woke up a little while later, and he was beginning to wonder, what in the world I was supposed to be called this morning to be executed, and I'm still here, what happened? And the people around him were able to tell him, there was an old man here who took your place. And I lost my page. Doesn't matter. Just tell the story. The old man took his place. Three days later, Robespierre, now that's the ringleader in the reign of terror, was himself executed by a guillotine. And that was the end of the French Revolution in the reign of terror. The young man walked free. At his father's expense. That's what the father wanted. Do you know that we have a God in heaven? And we deserve, now we don't know that this young man deserved anything, but he was going to be executed. But we deserve to die. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. And we can't get away from it. We're lost. There is only one hope in this thing, and that is, if somebody else will take our place and be executed on our behalf. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. Right from the foundation of the world, he began to do it for every soul that lived. Do you know that Jesus went to the cross with all of your sins? Do you know that he went to the cross with your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins? Do you know that he's paid the penalty for all of it? All of it. And he turns around and he says, here's eternal life. It's a free gift. All you have to do is say, thank you. Thank you. Are you able to say thank you? Do you ever say thank you? Would you like to say thank you? Is it worth it? Do you know this God who's done that for us? Ah, friends, listen. I hope you come back evening by evening. We're going to continue to investigate this thing. We're going to go deeper and deeper into it. So that not only will we find that we have the gift of eternal life, but we're going to find that there is so much power in the grace of God that we can become more and more like Jesus. And, and soon, soon, we are going to be working miracles like Jesus did. That's our destiny. Is it okay? God bless you. Shall we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful. 
for the plan of salvation. We're grateful for Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the sanctuary. We're grateful to try to understand more and more. And we want to understand. And we're inviting you. We're asking you to teach us. Teach us more. Teach us what you want of us. We'll do it. We give ourselves. We commit ourselves to you that we may do this thing. Bless us, Father. And lead us to come back, we pray. Let's learn more together. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.